You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Uh, welcome to Sojourn. For those of you that uh, don't know me, my name is Marshall, one of the pastors here. Um, it's my joy and honor to proclaim to you the truth of God's Word this morning uh, from the book of Exodus particularly. Um, If you're a guest, just want to say again, welcome to you. So glad that you would choose to gather with us on a Sunday morning um, and pray that uh, you will indeed uh, experience what we hope is a reality here, um, which is that we're a people to belong to, a family to belong to, rather than simply an event to attend on a Sunday morning. And so um, praying uh, that the Lord will be gracious to us and to you in that um, all together. Um, now, let's go ahead and, and jump in. If you've been around the past couple of weeks, you know uh, that we have been walking through a sermon series that we've entitled Christ of the Covenants, and uh, we're continuing that this morning where we look and see that throughout the Bible, God has graciously made promises which bind Him to His people, and He does this repeatedly and simply because He wants to out of His own kindness. He wants us to know Him in the context of a covenant relationship. So looking at the covenants, what we're doing is we're tracing the successive waves of God's grace all throughout the story and the history of the Bible. And so thus far, what we've done is we've, we've looked at God's covenant with Adam and the covenant of works. We've looked at God's covenant with Noah and the covenant of preservation. And then last week, we looked at God's covenant with Abraham, the covenant of promise, and today we get to look at God's covenant with Moses, uh, the covenant of law. And my hope and my prayer this morning um, is that uh, probably one of the biggest myths that people believe about God and about Jesus would be dispelled as we look at um, how the law of God and how the gospel of God Um, actually belong to one another inextricably. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we uh, do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people, Uh, people that you have called to yourself by grace, through faith, not of works, so that none can boast. And yet, Lord, a people who are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you have prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, Lord, would you send your Spirit to be with us, to open our eyes to see, our ears to hear the glorious good news of the gospel um, that calls us to you, uh, a great and holy and majestic and mighty, kind, gracious, merciful God, um, who in all of his might, has chosen relationship with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want to do um, is I want us to just be reminded of the journey that we have taken to get to this place um, with Moses, right? So, so what we saw in the covenant of Adam, right? In the beginning, God creates everything good. He appoints Adam as the covenant head over all of creation, right? He tells Adam, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth. And of course, what we saw is that Adam failed, right, to meet those obligations. There was the one exception, right? Basically, everything is yours. The only thing I'm going to ask you to do is to not eat of this tree. He fails to uphold the obligations of that covenant relationship with God. 
And in so doing, he rebels against that covenant, against relationship with God, right? Now, in spite of this, right, immediately after, God's response is what? His response is not to immediately destroy Adam, it's instead to give him a promise, right? That promise in Genesis 3 that he would come and that he would undo all of the wreckage that Adam has brought upon creation by failing to uphold the obligations of the covenant, right? So he responds with grace as opposed to wrath, and he initiates this overarching covenant of grace, this relationship defined by grace under which Everything else that we're talking about right now falls. Now, right, so that God, as he responds with grace, the reality is that the problems that Adam experiences are still there, right? So God says, I'm going to be gracious to you, but the fact of the matter is that there's still sin, there's still death, there's still all of the pain and suffering that Genesis not only says is there, but that you and I even now still experience, Right? But God says, again, although I've responded graciously here, I am working, I am working towards a coming, final, and full redemption yet. So here's here's what God does, right? So in response to the sin, to the brokenness, God decreates the world, right? Bible tells us great flood, everybody gone except for who? Noah, right? New covenant head is told the exact same things as Adam, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth, right? In light of this gracious relationship that you have with me, what do we see? Noah fails, right? Noah fails to do that. And God again responds graciously, promising to preserve the earth until redemption comes, right? So he says, look, Noah failed. That's okay. I'm still going to do what I said I was going to do in Genesis chapter 3, And then what happens? Then God comes to Abraham, and he comes to Abraham and tells him, I'm going to establish through you a family, and not just a family, but a family that will turn into a nation, and not just a family that will turn into a nation, but a nation that will then go on to bless all the other nations. All right, so that's God's promise to Abraham. And today, we'll see God's promise to Abraham fulfilled as the nation of Israel, right, which is, that's all of Abraham's descendants, okay, so the nation of Israel is now like the fulfilled promise of God to Abraham. Abraham's descendants have become a nation. What we're going to see now is God telling this nation how they're going to be a blessing, right? So what we should see here is, is a very clear sequence, a very clear operation of God's grace towards the end of this covenant relationship. And so this then brings us to Moses, right? Now, Moses is one of Abraham's descendants. Moses was born to parents in slavery, right? To the Pharaoh of Egypt. So that's, so that's where we are right now. We're, we're um, quite a ways removed, probably about 400 years now, removed from Abraham. Again, his descendants have become a great nation, but they're captive. They're captive in Egypt, And in that time, right, the Pharaoh says, all right, this whole Hebrew thing, this whole Israelite thing, they're they're multiplying, they're being fruitful, and we've got to figure out a way to, to kind of ease it up. And so he sends out a decree. He says, all right, every firstborn male 
from the Israelite people will be put to death. And so Moses' mother says, you know what? Not having that, wraps Moses up into a little basket, puts him in the Nile River, and where does he end up? He ends up in the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised among the royal family as a prince of Egypt. And it's this man that God says, all right, here we go. And so it's into that context that we see this, right? So Exodus chapter 2, and we read this, I think, just a minute ago. But Exodus chapter 2, um, verses 23 and 24, this is what happens. Israel captive in Egypt, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Right? So the people of God, the nation of Israel, are enslaved in Egypt, and they're crying out to God for rescue. And the Bible tells us that God saw that and that God had compassion on them, that their suffering, that our suffering, that the suffering of God's people does not go unnoticed by God. And in that moment, God remembers His covenant with Abraham. Right, so again, what we should see here is that God is, is operating in complete continuity. We don't have a covenant with Adam, and then he's kind of like, as if he was drawing a picture and he messed up on a piece and was like, okay, let me just erase that part and we'll start over. Or that was just a sketch, let's throw that, on, that one away and I'll do it better this time. This is all in continuity. He remembers his covenant with Abraham to make of his descendants a great nation, Now let's really zero in here, right? It says, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. Now we, we read sort of the, the latter part of Exodus, but we know that kind of in the middle of Exodus, we get the full-on list of the Ten Commandments that we, that we didn't read this morning, right? That's what we call the, the covenant of law that God essentially says, I'm going to relate to you now with this in mind, with the law in mind, now, what has traditionally happened, right, in, in Christian circles, particularly at this stage in history, is we've tried to sort of figure out how is it that we relate to this law? Like, what purpose does this law serve? So much of the book of Romans is, is about that. This statement right here, this statement in verse 24 of chapter 2 of the book of Exodus when it tells us that God remembered His covenant with Abraham, is huge in helping us understand the law and how it falls, again, squarely within the stream of God's gracious action throughout history. It wasn't, right, again, it wasn't faith under Abraham and law under Moses, right? It was always 100% grace. The promise that God gives to Abraham is grace. The promise that God gives to Noah is grace. The promise that God gives to Adam is grace. The promise that God now gives to Moses in the law is also grace. 100 proof grace. So God's giving of the law 
So God's giving of the law is not a response to the failure of the promise given to Abraham. Rather, both covenants are a part of the overarching covenant of grace that's carrying us from the failure of Adam to the victory of Jesus. So what we have to ask ourselves is this. If setting the law and the gospel at odds with one another is biblically untenable, if it's a false dichotomy, if, if law over here and gospel over here is a false dichotomy, then what is their proper relation? What is, the, what is the relationship between the law and the gospel that God would have us to live into? It's a serious question. Again, the discussion of so much of the New Testament revolves around that question. What is the proper relationship between the law and the gospel? And oftentimes when we read in Romans and maybe when we read in other books of the New Testament, those books that are written after Jesus came, sometimes they can be more confusing than, than, than helpful, right? So let me boil it down as simply as I possibly can, right? In the back and forth discussion throughout the New Testament, here's, here's what's going on. The writers of the New Testament, they don't have a problem with the covenant with Abraham or the covenant with Moses. So they're not saying one is good and one is bad. What they have a problem with is the way that the first century Jews, the first century people of Israel were interpreting the law. Okay, so that's a huge distinction. Don't miss that, right? The writers of the New Testament are not saying that the law is a bad thing. What they're saying is the way that it's being interpreted in their time amongst their contemporaries is utterly wrong because it's divorced from Jesus. So how can we avoid misinterpreting the law this morning? That's essentially what we're, we're trying to get to this, this morning. Now, you've probably heard this expression before, right? Don't miss the forest for the trees. You heard that before? Don't miss the forest for the trees. And all that that's saying is that don't get so sort of caught up in, in one portion of the forest that you miss the greater, the greater narrative, the greater reality that you find yourself in. And what we need to do this morning and what we can never afford to do is to miss the forest of God's grace for the tree that is God's law. Because that law is taking place in the context of this gracious relationship that God is establishing with His people, again, throughout human history. Right? God doesn't strike down Adam. He continues in relationship with us. Noah fails. He continues in relationship with us. Abraham fails. He continues in relationship with us. Moses and the people of Israel, I mean, the Old Testament is essentially one giant chronicle of how horrible Israel is at doing what they're supposed to do. And yet God continues in relationship with us. So if we remove the law from the context of that relationship, it's easy to see why we would think why we would think that God is just some cosmic policeman that writes moral traffic tickets. 
But when it's placed in the context of that relationship, in the context of His gracious love and care for us, what we begin to see is that this is much less like a cosmic policeman writing moral traffic tickets and much more like a loving father helping his children obey. So many people, many people have a skewed understanding of God's nature and character because they misunderstand the law. If we see God, if we see God as someone whose favor we have to earn by obedience, then we've misunderstood the nature of this covenant. We've misunderstood it. And we, and we end up going to a place that's, that we would call, or maybe you've heard it before in church circles, we call this legalism, right? We look to the law to justify ourselves. We say, if I just do all these things right, then I will earn God's favor. He'll really love me if I stop doing this and I start doing this. And that's just utterly wrong. Again, God's relationship is not contingent on the law. It's contingent on His gracious desire to have relationship with us. The law is simply a means by which He shows and reveals His care. But so here's the thing. You have this one side of, of, uh, of this sort of argument or this line of thinking, right, that takes us to a really dangerous place where we, where we start to look to the law to save us instead of to God. But, of course... We're, we are a polar people, and here's what I mean by that. We gravitate towards the poles most of the time because that's what's most readily understood. We like black and white. Gray is more difficult, right? And so where one group of people would say, legalism, follow the law, do what's required of you, and God will love you, then you have other people over here who step into a whole nother world um, that's called antinomianism or, or anti-law, and they just say, listen, I don't owe Jesus anything. Jesus has set me free. I can do and be and act however I want because Jesus just loves me. Now, what I'm here to tell you this morning is that both of those positions... Both of those positions are untenable in that they deny a Jesus who says, first, if you believe, if you believe, that's, that's all, believe that I am who I say I am, that, that's what is necessary for salvation, right? If you believe in me, that's it. But then we also have a Jesus who said, I did not come to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish the law. So, there's an element or there's something at play that allows Jesus to say those two things and still be faithful. Not, it's not like a bait and switch. Believe in me. Oh, by the way, let me throw this in here too. Right? Somehow, this is a both and. Now, I think what we should have noticed thus far in sort of our time together talking throughout the covenants is this. Right? That there... Um, are blessings that, that come from, from this covenant relationship with God and that there are obligations, right? For Adam, it was really simple. It was, don't eat from that tree, right? 
For Moses, it was really complicated. It was like, okay, don't have any other gods before me. Uh, honor your father and mother. Don't covet. Don't steal. Don't murder, right? Like, keep the Sabbath, right? Like, more and more expl- explanation as to, as to what sort, sort of those obligations were. But, again, all of those obligations took place within pre-existing covenant relationships. Right? So God said to Adam, I, I want relationship with you. Oh, and by the way, we have that. Now just make sure you don't do this one thing. So God, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, demands obedience. He does. But again, all of it takes place within the context of covenant relationship. This is evident when we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. It says this. This is right before the giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. You're welcome to go there if you want. This is what God says, again, right before He gives them the law, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So again, what? let's Pay attention to the order of this. Did God say, look, if you obey all of these rules, then I'll set you free? Then I'll be your God? When you've finally done enough of this, then I will claim you as my own? No. He says, you, I'm already your God. I already set you free from the land of Egypt. I have already taken you out of slavery. So we have this relationship. I've shown my gracious care for you. I didn't have to remove you from that. I didn't owe you that. You didn't earn that from me, and yet I did it. And so obey me. Enjoy this relationship that you have with me by doing these things, by walking in this way. Relationship is established, and it's because of that relationship that he has released them from slavery, and it's because of that relationship that he then turns around and says, obey me. Now, let's back up a little bit. I want to read uh, chapter 19, verses 2 through 6. This is what it says. They set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now remember, right? Remember what we said earlier. God's promise to Abraham last week was what? You will be my people, you will become a nation, and you will be a nation through which I bless all the other nations on the earth. And God reiterates that right here before the giving of the law, right? He says, 
You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God's got His people. He says that they belong to Him. That they belong, that they are His treasured possession. And now He's telling them, this is how you become the blessing. Right? I fulfilled my covenant to Abraham to make you into a great nation. Now this is how you as a nation are going to bless all of the other nations. So God's law, the giving of the Ten Commandments, were intended to create a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. A whole nation of them. Now for us to understand what God is saying here, we probably should know what the duty of a priest was, right? The duty of a priest was to serve, to guard, and to mediate relationship with God, right? That was the purpose they served. And so what God is saying is that now all of you together, right, all of you together serve as my priests. You're a nation of priests. What that means is that you are going to bless all these people, all these other nations by guarding, serving, and mediating relationship with God. So what we should see, what we should clearly see thus far is Moses building on Abraham, building on Noah, who built on Adam. So the question then is what went wrong, right? We've talked about this every week. We talked about sort of the nature of the covenant, right? That God, God graciously initiates in every single one of these situations. We've talked about the blessings and the obligations of the covenant, right? The blessing so often being that we get relationship with God. And the obligations being different in each covenant. And then we've talked about each week how, how each of them have sort of gone wrong. How Adam failed to uphold his end of the covenant. How Noah failed to uphold his end of the covenant. How Abraham failed to uphold his end of the covenant. How now the people of Israel will fail to uphold their end of the covenant. Now, let me be very clear here. It's important to understand that the law was never intended to be a means by which people could save themselves, all right? I think that's a common misconception with the law. It was never meant to be that, never, right? So it's not like, okay, the law was one way in the Old Testament, now it's different. It is assumed, the law assumes that sin will happen. That's why it gives us all this ritual and rules about sacrifices and what to do when we sin and how we respond to that sin, right? It assumes sin. So if the law was never meant to save, if the law was never meant to save, why was it given? I think there's two reasons as we draw to a close, two reasons that the law was given. First reason is this, so that the, so that the nation of Israel would be distinct and set apart for the nations, right? That they would be this nation of priests, this, this kingdom of priests by which God would mediate His covenant blessings, not just to Israel, but to all people in all places at all times. It was given. It was given to them, and yet they failed to obey, failed to keep God's covenant. They forgot, they grumbled, they perpetrated evil, and worst of all, in fact, this is what uh, God, or, or 
what, what was being responded to in Exodus chapter 34 is that they turned to worship other gods. Literally, while God is giving the commandment to them, the, the Israelites are like bored waiting on God, even though He's been there in a pillar of cloud by, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they're just like, well, I guess we'll worship this golden cow. God literally parted the Red Sea, led them out of Egypt, provided manna for food, water from the rock, and they go, golden cow is where it's at. Right? They turned after their own gods. So here's the thing. Israel could not be the kingdom of priests that it was meant to be, guarding, serving, mediating relationship with God because they forsook relationship with Him. They couldn't mediate a relationship with a God with whom they didn't have relationship themselves. It was an utter, utter failure. And that's, if you, want to, if you just read the rest of the Old Testament, in fact, I'll give you one chapter to read that'll tell you all about how Israel fails throughout that whole Old Testament. Psalm chapter 78. Go home and read it when you get a chance. It's all, that's, that's what it's all about. Psalm 78. So that was the first reason, right? It was given to make this people distinct, to make this a people through whom God's covenant relationship was mediated, not just to Israel, but to all people. And this brings me to the second reason that I think the law was given. God gave the law to help us see. By us, I mean you and me, but I also mean them back there in history. God gave the law to help us see all the ways that we fall short of God's holiness, of His perfection, of His moral unimpeachability. Now, why is that important? Why does God want us to see our failure so clearly in that none of us can read the law and go, I'm clear, right? Why does He want that? Because when we see our failures... It should cause us to long for Jesus. Israel's failures were to, were, were to point them to the coming Messiah, to the one that God promised in Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the serpent's head. And Jesus is that, is that one, that, that Messiah who came and who finally obeyed and who did so perfectly. Now, I want to just read a portion from Galatians that should help us uh, really kind of bring this home. Galatians chapter 3, and I'm just going to kind of jump around so that we don't have to read this whole long thing. You should really just read that whole chapter when you get home, if you get a chance. But starting in verse 21, it says this. I'm sorry, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, the offspring being Jesus, until Jesus should come to whom the promise had been made. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are, get this, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The law was meant to show Israel how far they fell short so that they could place their hope in the coming Redeemer. And this is how we can say that there has only ever been one means by which God saves, by grace through faith. He's been consistent in that. Israel's faith was forward-looking to the Christ that would come. Our faith is backward-looking to the Christ who has come. So get this, because of Jesus, God's covenant with Moses actually facilitates God's promise to Abraham. The law facilitates that promise. It brings us to Jesus. It takes us to his feet. It's what allows us to see what's broken inside of us so that we recognize our Redeemer in Christ. The law is a glorious, wondrous, hopeful grace to us. It's a mercy. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that where so many of us have, have probably typically read the law and gone, that kind of hurts a little bit, is one that we would embrace that hurt and that we would allow Jesus to put his balm over that wound and to heal us because that's what he wants to do. Now, so here's the thing, Right? Covenant with, covenant with Moses, with God's people, mediated through the law. New covenant now with Jesus, right? But here's the thing. I, I quoted from Ephesians chapter 2, and I, I want us to sit in this weight and in this reality. Because again, we have to escape this false dichotomy of grace and law and that you can only have one, right? Ephesians chapter 2, again, I've, I'm giving you a lot of reading assignments today, but... Go ahead and read it, right? But here's essentially what it says, right? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, so that none can boast. So listen, if you're here in the room this morning looking at your moral resume and going, I think I'm doing kind of all right, you're wrong. <laughs> Ephesians 2, dead in your trespasses and sin, hopeless, like, de like de decaying, dead, right? Dead people can't do anything to like, it's not like some dead guy's going, I'm just going to show this up and we'll be fine, right? No cadaver, like we have med students in here, right? No cadaver has ever done that, right? Dead in your trespasses and sins by grace, right? But God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ. It's by grace, through faith, that you have been saved, not of works, so that none can boast. But then at the end of that, at the end of that little section, what does it say? But we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared for us in advance, that we might walk in them relationship is there through Jesus. You are secure in his love. You, you, you will never be taken from his hand. You cannot be, there's no height, there's no depth, there's no width, there's no breadth, there's no mountain high enough, no valley low enough, right? 
that can keep Him from getting to us. There isn't. But here's the thing. If we want to now walk as His new... right, First Peter tells us what? That we are now a nation of priests. That because of Jesus, we've been restored to that calling, to that purpose, to mediate God's covenant blessing to the world around us. And so that means that when we walk uprightly, when we walk in righteousness, when we walk according to Jesus' law, it's not just for His glory, it's for our joy, but it's also for the good of the nations. That the nations will see and that the nations will be glad. And so here's what I think we can do this morning. We can know and we can understand that we are still expected to obey. That in every covenant relationship that God has had with His people, obedience is expected. And when we get to to heaven, when we get to glory, when we get to this place where God reigns and rules, you want to know what's not going to be up for debate? Obedience. It just won't. So we're still expected to obey. But here's the thing. Because of Jesus, we can obey joyfully. We can obey joyfully because we know that when we fail to uphold the law, that it's by grace we've been saved. Not of works so that none can boast, but that we are now His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared in advance for us that we might walk in them. So here's the thing. When the Bible causes you to cringe, just remember that that is given in light of gracious relationship. That the law is given in light of gracious relationship. That when the Bible makes moral demands on us, and it does, and you can't escape it, no matter how many little scriptural cartwheels you want to do to try to get out from underneath the weight of following Jesus, right? The reality is that there are moral obligations, moral demands to following Jesus, but they're all given In the context of loving relationship, they're all given with grace for every single failure and more. They're all given because God wants us not only to know Him, but to be loved by Him and to love others for Him and through Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. Uh, I thank You for the opportunity to gather again with Your people, Lord, the people to whom you have revealed yourself, and now the people through whom you would reveal yourself to the world. I pray, Father, that you would make us, that you would make us here at Sojourn Montrose, Lord, um, a distinct and set-apart people. Lord, that we would take holiness seriously, that we would strive to, to be obedient to you, to follow your commands, to walk in righteousness, to walk in holiness and uprightness before you knowing that those are your covenant blessings to us and to all who would believe. But I pray, Father, that we would walk in grace, that we would walk in this knowledge that the relationship is not contingent upon our obedience. It's contingent upon the fact that you graciously initiated it, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but that because you are rich in mercy, rich in mercy, you have made us alive in Christ. And this is by grace, through faith, not of works, so that none can boast. And so I pray this morning, Lord, if, there's, if there are people in this, the room this morning who maybe thought that they were followers of Jesus, but have really only been trying to uphold 
a rigorous moral code and have found themselves exhausted, Lord, that you would come and give them rest. Lord, that they might truly today for the first time confess that they don't have the power within themselves, but that you have graciously exercised your power for them. I pray for those in the room this morning who maybe had a completely disfigured understanding of who you are. That they would move from seeing you as the cosmic policeman killjoy to the gracious, loving Father who has their best interests in mind. Lord, would you do that for all of us this morning? Would you fashion us into your people? A a royal priesthood, a holy nation through which you mediate your blessings to the world around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.